Hey guys, welcome back. Come on in. Make yourself at home as you should when you're a guest in Bradley's house. I am your co-host, Jared Orr. She is the executive director of the Noel Family Foundation and our host, Ms. Kelly Noel. Kelly, how are you doing tonight? I'm fantastic. How are you, Jared? Good. You know, one of these days I'm going to give you like the, the true introduction. I'm going to go a six foot guard from the University <laughs> of Southern California. Uh, so that would be a lie, but okay. <laughs> I know it's like, you're just under six foot, but I think right. with the right shoes on that's, you know, um, honestly, I have five, eight at the age of 12 and now I'm five, seven and a half because getting old sucks. Well, if it makes you feel any better, I was like five five when I got my first license at sixteen, and then I was six foot when I went back at twenty one. And the lady was like, "This has to be a mistake." And I'm like, "No, lady, I don't. I, I can't explain to you, but I, do you see the pimples on my face? Yeah, I'm going through puberty at twenty one right now. I got this stuff growing under my arms, so don't, don't make it j- worse, woman. Yeah, yeah, I'm already I'm already a little weird about this. So um, awkward, as if the DMV couldn't get any worse. Right, right. I got I got Esther behind the counter busting my balls about being short last time I came in. I know I was short, lady. Thank you. Um, oh, Esther. So, <laughs> Kelly, once again, uh, we have a really fun show lined up, and uh, this is something that we've uh, we've talked about wanting to do, and it kind of just came together here. And I'm super excited about doing it. Everybody knows that it's 2021, so it's the 25th year anniversary of that self-titled album, and uh, we're going to get a chance to kind of dive into it and talk about it a little bit. I'm super excited about it. Kelly, who is our house guest returning to Bradley's house this week? I'm super stoked to let everybody know that we have John Phillips again today. And the last time, John was nice enough to join us. We talked about the whole story of him and Sublime, but it was kind of shortened because you can't jam that much history into one episode. And so as you mentioned, because 2021 is the 25th anniversary of Sublime's self-titled album, And that album happened largely due to this man's efforts. We thought it would be fun to have him back. So, John, thank you so much for joining us again. Right on. Thanks for having me back. It's good to be here. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure for us to get a chance to talk with you and me personally just to spend time with you. I think you're a great person. So, obviously, on this episode, we want to focus a lot on the self-titled album because so many people have lots of questions about it, and it's obviously been the most prolific of all of Sublime's albums. Um, So we're just going to jump right into it. So as most people know, the album was recorded for the most part at Willie Nelson's studio in Austin, Texas, Pedernales. How soon after Sublime got signed with, uh, I never know what to call it, so MCA Universal Gasoline Alley, did they start, like, did they head off to, to Austin to start recording? Uh, Exact timeline, I can't. Rough estimate. When when they when they signed with the label, and it was Gasoline Alley, which was the label that I worked for, and was A and R executive at a young A and R executive, and and, um, 
Gaslin Alley was a joint venture with MCA Records, which was part of the Universal Music Group. And Gaslin Alley was like a, a side label, a co-venture. And um, Skunk Records was the label that Sublime had had and Miguel that had been putting out the, the former titles. Uh, the band's original releases came out on Skunk Records, 40 Ounces of Freedom and Robin the Hood. So when the band signed, that was actually in the Robin the Hood kind of phase. It was mm-hmm. 1994, uh, su- summer of 1994. And um, they had the DAT. I think I might have shed some light on this the, the last time, but they DAT tapes were the format. That was like the, right. the new, those were like a small little digital tape. And I remember just prior to signing, you know, we were working on, I was working on trying to get the label interested and Universal interested, and but the band had come up with a DAT tape of of Robin the Hood and hadn't hmm. yet really put that out. They're like, "This is our new album," and Brad played me the song "Cisco Kid." He put that on his. This hmm. is a hit, and it was a door sample, and yeah. I was like, "Well, you can't do that," you know. <laughs> but that uh, that was the that was kind of the time period where they signed and Robin the Hood came out on its own. The band released it independently before signing, and then when they did finally sign to Gaslin Alley in July of 1994, um, the next step was really to try to, um, I guess, in my mind, offer Sublime the tools to record a world class record. Um, and what that meant, because Sublime was an unconventional band. Um, to them, it was, you know, let's rent a house and buy all of our own studio equipment and record in the house. And so I remember one of the first trips we took was down to Lucadia and we scouted a bunch of houses for rent. I remember going to like three or four houses with, with Brad and Miguel and, uh, looking at these places in Lucadia that the band was going to shack up in and, and live and bring in their own equipment and record like a a homemade style record and uh, I thought that was unique um, and wanted to provide them you know that kind of comfort level to do something unconventional um, we had read the stories about the Chili Peppers you know doing a, a house recording in Hollywood with all their own stuff and that happened to be Blood Sugar Sex Magic with Rick Rubin so it was like the one thing we didn't have in that case was like the big mansion and Rick Rubin producing. Yeah, I was going to say Rick Rubin would be the missing component <laughs> he, there. <laughs> he, he was on the link. And the funny thing is like, mm. on the list, um, when the band came over and, you know, we're like starting this journey and starting to decide like, or at least just discuss creatively, like, Hey, what are we going to do for the next record? Cause Robin the hood was out there and a lot of people misunderstood that album. It had Raleigh Theodore Saker's soliloquies that mm-hmm. were dominating a lot of the, uh, attention span of you know record execs or people that that was ex- extremely sublime type of thing for them <laughs> to have that on the album but a lot of people you know kind of focused, focused on, on that, that. Yeah. And, and yeah what is this gibberish and in between that were these songs <laughs> like stp greatest hits saw red yeah. with Gwen. Uh. um you know, that was another homemade hodgepodge type record which is part of the band's craft so right. i was like I wanted to respect that also because the creativity with a record like that seemed less homogenized to me. And I felt like that was one of the unique qualities about Sublime and Bradley's work on both records, 40 ounces to freedom and Robin the hood. So I was like, fine, let's, 
<clears throat> use some of the recording budget and give the band what they want and let them go in and at least pre-produce, if not come up with, you know, great record, capture the magic like we were talking about, wanted to have tape rolling, not on a studio clock where right. if the band was, you know, in four in the morning having a bender, but they just happened to be <laughs> in their zone that, you know, Miguel would be there capturing that. And <clears throat> that was kind of the first impetus of recording. And, but I still, in the other part of my mind being at the, a label with tools and a budget, I really wanted to get the band and the band wanted to Miguel and Brad both asked me, it wasn't like, Hey, toss Miguel aside. Like it was like, let's just enhance this and see where we can go. And so we started talking about, you know, who could actually produce Sublime. And uh, I remember coming up with a, a wish list that I drew up that had everyone from Rick Rubin to the Dust Brothers. And I also had put on there, um, I always thought it'd be cool if Brad worked with Walter Becker and Donald Fagan and Steely Dan. So I even had mm. that on there, you know, like it was a long shot type of things. Um when it came down to it, the band ended up saying, hey, you know, let us go into this. We, they found a little, they ended up, uh, I don't know why we didn't do the Lucadia houses because that was really cool. It was such a nice place to be down there and live. I know Brad really liked that and could get yeah. out of the Long Beach riffraff. That didn't happen. They ended up identifying a location that they decided to make a makeshift studio, and that was over on Anaheim. Uh street in long beach which became known as the fake nightclub and sublime came to me was like we found the spot we want to rent it they hooked me up i remember with the landlord of the place like you know pay for this this is where we want to do it and they ended up setting up shop in long beach at this um kind of like dilapidated storefront warehouse mm -hmm. very indescript um right there on anaheim i forget the cross street taco bars and little things but it's pretty ghetto and uh okay well that's <laughs> where you guys want to do it and they created the fake nightclub there and that's where these initial recordings started to <clears throat> um originate from and it was pretty obvious at that point that these demos were coming out of there that they were kind of for the purpose of demos and pre-production but uh Again, they're very lo-fi, piecemeal. I mean, definitely not what, like, signing to a label would enable. You know what I mean? That wasn't, to me, the ideal scenario, although mm. it was a good, I think, place for the guys to start to put some stuff down. And remember sending those off then to this producer list, and two of the people that we had discussed and um, – one of them, Miguel, came to me and said, what about David Kahn? I was like, Fishbone, David? Yeah, that makes sense. He was at Columbia Records and signed Fishbone and made Truth and Soul and their great recordings. And he also made a lot of great pop records of the 80s. And um, he was somebody that seemed to have, uh, I don't know, kind of a dichotomy of styles and things. And right. I really wanted the band to achieve a certain level of commercial success or at least, you know, have that op that chance to make something that sonically would be actually played on the radio and could help break the band, achieve a bigger audience, you know, and I think that was the goal and that's why we ended up choosing some of these producers. But David Kahn, he responded pretty quickly to the demos uh, that we had sent and called me back. 
you know, Miguel was like trying to get a hold of him. And I was like, I like that idea and got a hold of David. And he responded back saying he really dug, uh, dug the music and was interested. And, nice. um, so that, w- that session actually ended up materializing, uh, before the Paul Leary sessions mm-hmm. and David, um, came out here and, the band decided to go into total access studios at that point with David Kahn. Um, and then the Paul Leary scenario was I had just been listening to 40 ounces and, you know, the thank yous at the, the end of 40 ounces to freedom reference, a lot of sublimes influences and friends and Mm -hmm. bands that they were paying tribute to. And they said, uh, butthole surfers and the meat pots. And I was like, you know, and I actually was talking to another friend of mine that I, somebody I was trying to interest in sublime, not even like just a, a friend, not a music industry person. Check this music out. What do you think? And we both are big fans of uh, the meat puppets who would work with Nirvana. And then uh-huh. we kind of realized in that conversation, well, you know, Paul Leary, the, the butthole surfers guitar player, he just mm-hmm. produced a new meat puppets record, which uh-huh. was called too high to die ironically enough um (laughs) i i just like was like man this this could be a real recipe and too high to die was a meat puppets were an indie band and they definitely had that lo-fi indie rock sound they were on uh indie labels coming up and till nirvana kind of anointed them as you know this huge influence on mtv on the the unplugged record where they covered lake of fire and plateau um Paul Leary really drew the best sonically that we had heard out of the Meat Puppets and Too High to Die had a song called Backwater that became a pretty big hit on FM radio and I was like that's it you know like I love the 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 mesh of the sound that Paul Leary got on that and he's an actual artist that the band respects and loves it actually pays tribute to on their older record as well as the right. record he had just produced. He had also produced another successful uh, radio record, sonically another really good one by a band from Austin called The Toadies that came uh-huh. out on Interscope Records. And I don't know, I just, you know, again, was always thinking, how do we get the most, you know what I mean, give the band the best choices, variety. Like if they do some killer stuff at the home studio, great. Like let's do David Kahn. He's more of a Popeye and Paul Leary is more of, you know, an actual artist, artist. And so that kind of became the array of producers. And the first sessions ensued with David Kahn and there weren't really all these songs yet developed. David came out and he got in the studio with the band at Total Access, which is in Redondo Beach. And, you know, no doubt Pennywise, a lot of history there, punk rock, but beach, mm-hmm. you know, California recording culture and a lot of the Sublime's idols. So they felt right at home. Uh, David Kahn didn't. He called me the next morning after the first session threatening to like leave and told me that he didn't think that the band was ready or Brad was ready mm. to record and you know they, they just weren't unprepared and he was very he said you know he said you should send me home tomorrow don't waste don't waste your money <laughs> i was mm. just like pretty shocked or, you know just yeah. like taking in stride though i was like well david you're think 
you're probably used to doing a lot of sessions where, you know, you're working, he was working with Susanna Hoffs from the Bangles and sure. uh, he was known as a kind of tough personality in the studio as well. Um, and he had had the tension with Fishbone where Fishbone actually punched him out when they recorded the record. So <sighs> there was some lore about David Conn. The label, Gasoline Alley, they had actually managed Susanna Hoffs, whose record he produced. So they knew David real well. And when I actually brought him up at first to the label execs, they were like, oh, he made Susanna cry. So I'm like, yeah, but he produced <laughs> Fishbone. And they were actually kind of, no. And um, he, the, so anyway, I told him, hey, David, listen, man. This is probably this is punk rock. It's not what you're probably used to right now, you know, eighties, but I know these guys are gonna come through. Brad's like a super talent and just stick with it. And I feel like I remember telling them they're like the kid that's gonna cram the night before their final exam and get at least an A minus. <laughs> so stick it out. And he went back to the he did. He said, Okay, I'll go back the next day. And the next day I think is where Miguel and Brad and him had some transparent communication about some of the other factors, you know, yeah. being drugs and, you know, things like that, that were maybe affecting the mindset and just, David been around a long time. So it was, I think better to probably, you know, he came into a situation with optimism, but not a lot of knowledge about sublime and who they were and how punk rock, I think the approach was. And, you know, I mean, we all were hopeful that maybe, lifestyle and habits weren't going to get in the way and you just kind of never knew it was always like a, a little bit of a crapshoot with all that and right i think david eventually after having that second day in the studio was like okay you know i get it and he got really into it and by the end of like the fourth or fifth day in the studio they had tracked what i got which there was previously a demo for that, that the band had done at Total Access himself without David. So we knew about that song and all had hugely high hopes for that to be, you know, a hit maybe. Um, they tracked Caress Me Down, which had no idea that was going to be, in, part of it was going to be in Spanish. I remember hearing <laughs> Brad like messing with that song on acoustic guitar when uh. we first went, uh, signed the band. I remember... They got a check from the label, and I took him to the um, to the bank to cash it right by Universal. And he, I remember yeah. Brad had his acoustic guitar the day we went in there, and he was like walked to the bank with the high ceilings and all that, and he was belting out "Caress Me Down." And I was like, <laughs> I always remembered that song. <laughs> yep, but true story. The band went in, oh. cashed a check for a hundred G's, and oh, Brad's like singing "Caress Me Down," and I remember <laughs> that song. So it was like. To hear that from the David concepts, like, oh, that's that one you did in the bank. You know what I mean? And it was so different. <laughs> um, and they did Miami, which turned uh -huh. out to be April 29th, 1992. But the working title was Miami. Right. And that, like, and then doing time. And mm. honestly, I mean, you couldn't, one, from where Sublime had recorded before to where those four David contracts went, even before mixing, was like David Conn was playing piano on some. Yeah. Dave Aaron was who worked with Snoop was sequencing stuff. Uh, they they turned you know these skeletons of songs into what I was just you know my ear hit and I was like man this is this is next level you know and late then this is before Leary so um, 
remember going into the studio, the mix studio with, uh, with David Kahn when, um, me and Brad and Miguel, I think, went down to Studio City, and he was at a, a studio called Scream, a famous mixing studio, and he was in there, and uh, he would mix those tracks. And I think at that time, he also started working on uh, the Sugar Ray track for what would become their big hit, The Fly, which he, I always thought, and I mean, it's not even think, I mean, this is just facts, like David Kahn took Sublime's Recipe, and then applied it to um, Sugar Ray. Sugar Ray, yeah. And he had the dance hall guy, Super Cat, and it was like he took that same kind of what I got production approach, got the dance hall singer and Mark McGrath and made this thing called The Fly that became another you know super commercial hit with that kind of style, which, I mean, point blank, I mean, and Mark McGrath would admit it to this day because he's like that. He's a cool guy. Uh, but yeah, I mean, they just, you know, the imitation's the greatest form of flattery, you know, it was just that. And anyway, I remember David was just starting on that, but he handed us these mixes on the cassette tape and we didn't know what David was going to really do with the songs. And he gave it to Brad and we went over to this little lounge room with a cassette deck and popped that tape in there. And we heard the mixes of what I got doing time, mm. April 29th and caress me down and I remember Brad took the tape out of the deck, didn't really hmm. say much. He just handed me the tape. He's like, well, Johnny, he's like, at least we got our money's worth. <laughs> gave me the cassette. I still have the cassette. Somewhere oh, in awesome. Wow. <laughs> yep. But I also think, you know, to shed light on that time, even myself, I, there was a little bit of fear that maybe those were like not as, I don't know if edgy or hard enough or put, they were just polished mixes and you know kind of a an approach that took sublime beyond what they were doing themselves and i think in a really good way a way that in a sense needed to happen given the other ch chain of events that unfolded like it, it gave it the treatment that needed to be kind of mass consumed but still kept kind of the integrity but i think that it was like, well, is this too pop? Is it, you know, like, they were so good. But it was like, Paul Leary, let's get the band in a band setup where they can be themselves. And, you know, that's when Leary was like, and we were also like wanting to get the band out of town. And there was mm -hmm. also a split at that time between gasoline alley and a lot of the co-venture labels and mca records there was like a, a turnover in the whole corporation of universal they dropped a lot of sub labels mca was struggling as a rock music label they were really having more success in country and hip-hop and r&b and they were unsure because the new mca regime came in um it transferred from al teller who was a gasoline alley um advocate and brought gasoline alley into the mca family originally he got booted for jay boberg and a new regime that kind of took over the mca records division uh -huh. and jay came over from network records which was you know had some early police like affiliate i mean he's a guy that could understand i think you know he wasn't just a suit he was a guy that had a music background um they didn't know what they were inheriting was Sublime. And I remember at that point, like, Gas and Alley was losing 
like uh, their financial co-venture partnership. So it was like it was this nebulous time where didn't know if uh, MCA was going to actually grant this budget to actually get the band to Texas. Um, we like I put it up and all together, and all of a sudden, like this thing happened where it's like, well. <laughs> And I'm on the phone with Paul Leary going, yeah, we're, they're coming out. They're coming out. And on the flip side, I'm like seriously scared that Universal was not going to like approve this budget and was going to have to be like it's not happening. Um, I wrote a, a long letter to Universal MCA people and, you know, Gasoline LA backed me. They want to see this made because they were there for the whole journey leading up to that. And um, they eventually approved the budget, which I think was around sixty grand or something for Leary to produce and all the expenses to get out to, to Austin. And um, that was the best decision I think that Jay Boberg probably made as the MCA new president was like, okay, he greenlit it and the band was off in their RV to Texas and Paul Leary was on and he's like, yeah, send him out. I've got Willie Nelson's studio Pattern Alice is famous Willie Nelson's complex, uh, and that's where I'm going to track the band. And uh, that was a glorious day. And <laughs> <laughs> so it was all about getting them out of their their comfort zone, that getting them out of their their area where all the stuff was going on, right? That was definitely part of it. You know, we wanted to give them the ability to have an experience recording and right. just be in a unique environment and. Paul Leary, you know, not having him be a butthole surfer's guitar legend and one of the architects of alternative music, if you really think about it. Like, I mean, he paved the way for what became alternative, really. And he was making credible, sonically complete recordings that were making on radio from cool bands. So it was kind of just about all of that, getting the guys with someone that they could, you know, gel with, jive with, be comfortable um, speak the same language and ultimately try to get performances down that, that uh, would hopefully be captured, you know, in the right, right manner. And you guys certainly picked the right guys. There's no, there's no question about that because it, it did exactly what you just said. I got to ask John, because I, I've been thinking this since we started chatting here and maybe you can clear it up. Maybe it's rumor and innuendo, but the rumor is, is that, and you kind of said that there wasn't a lot of songs ready put together um what was the plan i mean you said you guys started talking about you know getting producers and who's gonna do it uh, did you know that i mean at this point brad really didn't even have an album written or was it just like hey brad's a superstar and we're just gonna get in there and he's gonna make something happen i was kind of reading between the lines on the stuff they did at the fake nightclub and some things that i had heard before that like just raw versions <clears throat> um had a lot of belief and, you know, that they would magically, you know, Brad would come up with stuff. And uh, I don't know if you guys read the article in The Ringer, but that to me, out of all the 25th anniversary articles that came out about the album, really is a, a the most comprehensive, the most colorful, like the, the realest details. Um, it was a great article. Yeah, of that whole process. Like, that was real journalism. Like, I went deep into – I mean, that depicted as close – you know, there were some factual inaccuracies and things like that. But that depicted really, I think, probably the best, uh, you know, and truest of the uh, – you know, written work on that experience. And 
It's like it says Nat. I mean, even Bud and Eric were like worried and looking at each other like we don't have any songs, you know. And it's tough sometimes. I've noticed it in the music uh, musician's career. I mean, the first album, and this was the case with Sublime. I mean, all these songs were written. There were demos of it. They've been playing them live before they went to forty ounces. They had a lot of a lot of music and songs. Robin the Hood was piecemeal with a lot of stuff they probably did on the spot but then they had the six or so songs they did with uh with epitaph that <clears throat> were kind of more cohesive songs that i think the band were playing live and then on this record it was like we really hadn't heard much of this material i mean santeria was lincoln highway dub which sure. Eric, which Eric says in the article, he's like, yeah, that we we had that one. I wrote that one, but it was like that was just an instrumental, you know. And um, the crazy thing is that when Leary, the first thing he sent me back from those sessions was a finished version of Lincoln Highway Dub that was now called Santeria, and that was a complete song that we heard, and just the whole way Brad's voice that like. That immediately gave me huge, huge hope of what was going to come out of that studio. Uh, but he said, you know, he sent me that early because maybe it was one of the first ones they had finished and a, a couple others, but like really kind of hit the nail on the head with that, making it a complete song from Lincoln Highway Dub to Santeria. So, um, yeah, I mean, I had faith. I know that during the conversations of that, recording process in texas i was talking to brad verbally over the phone um and i just remember still echoing like him saying man he's like lyrics are hard he's like man johnny lyrics are hard so i think he was having his own you know struggles living up to expectations he wanted to be as a writer or a poet or you know however he viewed himself but um the, the ringer thing says, you know, how they, uh, how this was cut on tape. And so they, they were like really cutting tape, not just, you know, pro tools where they're being able to mix and comp all the stuff. It was like a pretty laborious process, but I think they let the guys go and let Brad go and, and how they piece these things together ended up, you know, making a lot of sense. And, and they did a great job producing, you know, those songs there especially given those circumstances because i don't think it was like fluid here's we know it's not it wasn't like here's the next 13 songs we're just going to go track them all and just perform they were brad was making a lot of lyrics up on the spot and i know he was going back from the, the studio to the hotel and trying to write lyrics and uh also you know i remember coming home and turning in the full and us listening to this full record and he was like man he's like get me to Jamaica. He's like, I want to record again. It's like, man, this isn't 40 ounces. Like he seemed to be disappointed. Like he could conquer more and do more than he did on this record, you know? And some of that was, I think when he got back from Austin and started to clean up because as the ringer article depicts, you know, and as pretty much history is, you know, written that, you know, that was not a pretty picture down in Austin. It was unraveling as things were going on and getting to be a more dangerous, like, kind of environment. And uh, when he came back, I think Bradley was having that realization, at least telling me, like, hey, man, like, 
it's not 40 ounce. I'm like, yeah, but dude, you came through with flying colors. This is such a fucking great record. Like, it's like, well, get me down to Jamaica, man. I want to record more, like the next one or whatever. And that was, I remember one of the last conversations I, I had with Brad is he was telling me like, I want to go record in Jamaica, which I wish we would have had the opportunity to do because that was definitely next. But as I said, I mean, came through with flying colors and then some and a record that's now obviously a classic. And Yeah, it's legendary. It's, it's absolutely, yeah. Yep. So you, you kind of said that Brad was like, yeah, you know, it's good, but he thought maybe he had some better in him or he, he, he was ready to get started on the next project. Do you remember specifically like uh, Dave and, and Paul's reaction when there was a finished product? Like, did you guys look at each other and realize what just happened or was it just like, oh yeah, this was another, this was another good album, I guess, that we put out. In the David Kahn sessions at Total Access in the very like last day when David was like finally happy and like was glowing in his face because he knew he did something great with the band. Um, I mean, he also still told me on the side, he's like, man, he's like, you were right. But he's like, I wish we had a song. He's like, I wish we had a song. I mean, like, I don't think he knew that he produced four hits or at least, you know what I mean? Two and a half. Uh, and I mean, what I got became a huge, huge hit. And I would have to say that all four of those songs are, they didn't reach the same commercial capacity or chart position as what I got, but what I got pressed me down doing time and <clears throat> April 29th are all classics. And David Kahn was kind of the producer that was still saying, man, I wish we had that song. I wish we had the song. And I remember when he said that, I'm like, well, did you record uh, Profit? Because there's a song floating around between Bradley and Miles from Slightly Stupid that they recorded together early on. That month. And I was like, that one. And I remember talking to Bradley about possibly recording that. I think David had heard it, but they never got around to recording it. And... Um, I always thought I ain't no profit was going to be one that Sublime took to you know new heights and that one has a lot of history to it and has floated around on the slightly stupid repertoire for all these years and is kind of a, a shared classic I think but yeah there was where's the like, tape John where is the tape from that Brad and Miles session uh, that one is actually there's a version of it on the end of the slightly stupid self-titled like hidden yeah track. Yep. yeah the hidden track the hidden track is there but there's there's been some still frames put out there there's been a few teased leaks somebody has that full that full set of Brad sitting in Miles's living room and the two of them jamming that tapes out there i know you've seen it where is it dude i wish i, I if i knew then you know it probably would have seen the light of day possibly um Fuck. I know. As I recall, um, in terms of like archive type stuff, um, Miles' mom recorded a lot of that stuff. I know that they donated tapes at a certain point. Well, not donated, but like lent their tapes to uh, one of the early like movie projects. And I want to say Story Sales Lies, one of those. Um, there was always a little bit of like, a bitter sentiment I remember from uh, from Ma's mom about not ever getting those tapes back. And at the time, I mean, Josh Fischel was the videographer who was kind of messing with that stuff with Zach and that thing. And 
I mean, Josh unfortunately passed away over time. So I don't honestly, I don't know that the known whereabouts of those are. If if anybody does, I mean, those really are property of, of Lori uh, Miles' mom, and. I know because I've seen like videos from the stuff and heard about it and Lori's asked for herself, hey, you know, do you know where those are? Can you get them back for, for me? So I don't know. I mean – Listen, community, if you're hearing this, let's do the right thing. You go ahead and send me those tapes and I will make sure to get them back to their rightful owner. No questions asked. Um, I'll, I'll be happy to review them because I know they're, I know they're floating around out there somewhere. So, um, obviously you guys realized, um, like you said, you heard these songs, you knew that they were, they, they were great songs. Uh, I'm sure you didn't, uh, anticipate, you know, a, a seven time platinum album. I don't think anybody thinks that when they're sitting there, they just know that they made a good album. Uh, do you remember like at what point the excitement really started to build for you guys watching the numbers? Um, from some of the research that I was able to do, uh, obviously we know the album came out on July 30th, uh, in October of 96, um, it said that, you know, there was like 150,000 units sold up to that point. Uh, and then it got to a point in April 97 when it cracked the top 20 on billboards that it was doing like 40 to 50,000 copies a week. Do you remember the point where somebody, cause somebody came up to you and said, add a boy, you got, you got a slap on the back from somebody at some point do you remember when that started i mean first off for me when i heard 40 ounces to freedom and finally click with me and got it i mean i really did think that sublime could be a multi-platinum musical entity um i not to like toot my own horn but i mean i told gasoline alley like this could be the next nirvana but you know the same risks are involved like you know we've got a, a volatile possible you know cult anti-hero and somebody that that is more creative and has more talent than anyone i know i was like i'll bet the farm on the music but here's the other risks you know so uh i kind of always believed it and i think you know anyone that knew me back in the early days and realized too i was a 23 year old like basically a kid just getting started in the music business with the rare opportunity of, you know, working for a label. My uncle was a partner in the labels. That's how I kind of got the gig out of college. I paid some dues early. I was really into music. And when I heard when 40 ounces clicked, Bad Fish, 40 ounces of freedom. Uh, and you know, those songs in that record, don't push right back, get out. I mean, I, I already knew. So it really was a crusade for me from that point on to try to instill that belief in other people, uh, despite whatever obstacles came about. And ultimately, um, with the recording, well, and to tell you the truth, before this record even got going recording wise, when Sublime signed the record deal, the first thing that, um, I kind of instructed the label and marketing to do that we, we all wanted to do that believe in Sublime because there was a, a younger group of people that were kind of skunk records, kids, me, Zach, like Greg Abrams. So we all knew, I think there was something inherently very, very special about this. And at that point we're like, you know, we got some time before the next record. Let's get these other songs out. So we made the combination disc with the Tabasco label, a promo disc that had what we thought were 
the best songs from 40 Ounces and the best from Robin the Hood, and those all got put on a promotional disc that we sent to all the radio stations uh, across the land, including K-Rock. And, you know, Date Rape wasn't even a song that we put on that disc because there are so many great songs. That wasn't even one that we wanted to have hit radio first, but uh, organically, obviously, it did. We had put a Date Rape outtake on that little one. Um, We knew it was popular when the band was playing live. We also knew at that point the band was kind of stopped playing it, too. Um, But, you know, I think we all felt like a lot of this music, maybe it wasn't recorded for the masses but the message and the music and the raw genius honest quality about it no matter what could all hit a massive audience and so i think that process started on those first two records with that combined promo disc the tabasco label one and then date rape hits and you know the band achieves this other level of success and it's like okay we finally proved like there's something there radio responded to something without really us even trying and the, the fans responded. All K-Rock had to do was put Date Rape on, and there was already a cult following in Los Angeles. It was just ready. It was culturally ready, too. And that music had been bubbling. And, you know, like, Brad, to me, really was the guy who, you know, like, he encapsulated it all into these incredible songs. And no doubt in 311, we're getting this, like, head start, so to speak, but, like, saving the best for last, you know? And, and Brad was right there, so... Uh, that being said, upon getting these recordings and mainly those four David Kahn songs and then Santeria from Paul, and when I heard Santeria, I forget David Kahn's already knew those were sick, but when I heard Santeria, I, I sent that immediately to these like label execs for like, listen to this, like, and I think at that point really is the first point that maybe the more corporate people were started like, oh, well, this is, there's something here, you know, like this is, um, and it was sonically and presentably in a non-lo-fi manner. I mean, it just sounded so rich and great the way that they recorded it out there with Paul. Um, so yeah, I mean, at that point and at the point I was telling you, then the new MCA regime comes in and I sit down with Jay Boberg. It's like he, <laughs> me, him and Brad at dinner when the band was playing the House of Blues shows, the April of uh, 96, and that's the first time a lot of these people ever saw Sublime. Before they saw him, we went out to a record label dinner. I'm saying that like in quotations or kind of facetiously. I've told this story before. I mean, Jay Bober was like, let's go over to uh, Marmont Hotel across the street and the bar or whatever. And that's where like, you know, John Belushi, all the celebs hang out. It was like a posh, like cool place to go. And Brad was wearing flip flops for the house of blue shows. And we try to go over there. They wouldn't let us in. Uh, no flip flops, no shoes, no shirt, no dice type of thing. It's like fast times at Ridgemont high. And, uh, so we're like, where do we want to go? And Brad's like, let's just go to McDonald's. And there's like a McDonald's across the street. And I remember this is, before the night and before the House of Blues and the first meeting with the MCA people and it's me, Bradley, and Jay Boberg and we walk over to McDonald's and we sat down at McDonald's. Brad had like some cheeseburgers or something or and we talked and I remember sitting there and Jay Boberg was like, Yeah, if we do, you know, two fifty to five hundred thousand or six hundred thousand 
And I was just shaking my head going like, what? Like, you know, under my breath because I was playing the game. But like, I was like, no, what? You know, I was already thinking millions platinum and we need to, you know, like, so I think the, the expectations within the building of, you know, the commercial music, corporate music, they had lower expectations. Um, you know, same thing. I kind of felt like if, uh, if the band could endure, uh, you know, the issues that were self-destructive and could actually last like on the road for a year or two. I mean, I kind of was thinking, and I said it, I was like, dude, this is like a combination of the Grateful Dead and the Beastie Boys, and it's going to be the next biggest like stadium act. Um, so, I don't know, put it in perspective, I mean, I always had the belief, and the crazy thing about it is the circumstances which it did achieve success were bittersweet. I mean, Brad wasn't here to really see what his creation with his band had garner the success and the acceptance not the the reverence you know of his soul and how people you know took to that um and uh it is like when it finally happens like that and you know you kind of this isn't something that you plan for ever expect but you know the guy who was its creator wasn't there anymore and then it takes on this new life of success acceptance and it's on the radio and you know um and that was kind of the bittersweet kind of payoff that you know you were you were right and this this music had a spirituality about it that couldn't be denied and so that part is really surreal and it still is to me today 25 years later you know when all these articles start coming out and when you're there and you're doing it, you don't always have the perspective to look at it and feel it. And a lot of people always go, well, do you know like what you're responsible for? Do you know that? And I always shake it off because it kind of embarrasses me. And, you know, I'm not like completely comfortable with all that. But, um, you know, it is uh, it's something that I could only say it's like otherworldly, spiritual. Um, there's a comfort level in the fact that it happened at this level and that's what we we're living for back then when we were in the moment and you know i mean much respect for everybody involved in the process that helped to make it come to fruition um you know my greatest fear would be and back at that time would be that this music wouldn't see the light of day and I do remember sitting there in a, like a board meeting with the MCA Universal people and, you know, not knowing Sublime's biggest commercial success at that point was Date Rape, which was, you know, a massive hit on K-Rock. It didn't ever really hit on the national level, at least at radio. And that was what they had to gauge it on internally, you know, in the record label side. Um, but to like see what I got get put out as the first single and achieve this massive commercial radio success like the first week it got released um that was validation and that's when the lights turned on for everybody else like holy shit like we've got something you know i said that before too there was a discussion with with universal where we literally were pleading with them hey you know we've worked everybody's worked tremendously hard for years on on this thing and 
the family really wants this music to come out. And so does the street, you know, it's always about the street. And I'm like, dude, the street is, they need this. It's like, they're waiting for this. It's a cultural movement and moment. And the biggest fear would, was that it wouldn't see the light of day due to politics. And there was exploitation issues and there was legal things going on behind, you know, all those things. Sure. And there's a lot of politics that go behind the release of, of a record, especially at a major label. And, especially when you're navigating a major label that has a brand new group of people that weren't really there through the whole process. They're not necessarily connected to it the same way. And I mean, there's so many records every day, you know what I mean? That like in a record label, just cause you're on the label doesn't mean that you're a priority. And right. Sublime. I mean, one, the, the artist wasn't there to tour anymore. There was like, you know, there's this thing that happened that nobody necessarily really wants to talk about too much in public, um, you know. And I actually remember during that time, too, once Sublime, and like you said, okay, then by August it came out, by September, October, there's 150,000 sales. It's just starting at radio. What I got's getting all this play. Who knew that what MCA was going to do? You know, like service another single was going to have the same thing. Wrong way, I believe, came next, um, and kind of just kept the train moving. Santeria catches fire. We're doing posthumous videos. Um, MTV is still alive and well at that point. Um, I think uh, that was a big part that Sublime's "What I Got" video um, was the first song the biggest commercial hit and MTV started really catching on to that. And once you got into that rotation, I think you start seeing record sales skyrocket and the video for what I got, I'm really proud of it. It won the video for the best alternative video for that year. Um, and it starts getting put in those conversations. And, you know, I mean, at the time I know, Beck was out there on commercial radio with Loser, with songs kind of like I feel like fit in the sublime kind of vein. And there was no doubt, I guess, was popping a little, you know, at that point. But it just it culturally and sonically that what I got song like that propelled the initial commercial success. And then, boom, from there, wrong way. Santeria. Yeah, it was a racket ship. And unfortunately, you know, again, uh, some of those posthumous videos I mean, I think what I got holds up the best for, you know, what really encapsulates the spirit of Sublime and Long Beach and there's something very real to that video to me still. And, um, yeah, I mean, that's kind of at that point is when it's like, whoa, okay. <laughs> we sold five million records. They sold, you know. That's, right. That's well, lot, like. You know, it's always, you'll always have that one person that says, you know, well, well, yeah, you know, the guy died and they sold, you know, that's why they sold 6 million records. And I actually had somebody say that to my face one time. And I said, you know what, buddy? I said, you're absolutely right. I I couldn't agree with you more because if Brad would have been able to take that album on tour, it would have sold 25 million. So I agree. I agree with you. I agree with you with what you're saying. That's true. Well, um, and what I was getting to, too, about the time, about the conversation no one wants to have, what I noticed um, from a PR standpoint is there was something going on in the world at that time that was greater and bigger than this culture, 
like sublime stuff or alternative and that was called hip hop and in hip hop was the biggest commercially successful music of that era you know hip hop was 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 up there you know probably beating out rock from just a straight up sales perspective across the board and the big deal that was being made at all these um video award shows and on MTV and what was happening concurrently at the same time but in the hip hop culture was that you had the Biggie and Tupac uh scenario going down like both had you know die, I'm pretty sure at, at that time both had died but at least one there was a shooting there was like gangster rap and violence and people dying and that was the PR topic that was what was being discussed in every major music publication on MTV on every major show and those dudes were already superstars Bradley Noel and Kurt Cobain was already dead Bradley Noel was not even known he was a superstar that had played to least amount of people for how popular that his legacy got and his music got I don't think there's anyone that's played for less people than Sublime to be as famous as that music is and it's funny you say that because I had in my notes here one of the questions I wanted to ask you was is Sublime the most successful band that nobody ever got to see? I mean, I would say so. I mean, I think when well, there was a comparison and going back to like um, the thing with uh, with Jay Boberg and MCA, you know, thinking about I was like Andrew Wood and Mother Lovebone. Andrew Wood became this like cult superhero in the grunge scene before Pearl Jam and Soundgarden hit. And they made a record for him called Temple of the Dog that everyone compiled on and that launched hunger strike one of the first grunge hits as that movement was happening but their guy who kind of started that there was a guy named andrew wood the lead singer of mother love bone and there was that kind of cult side of it was like hey is that what brad's gonna be in the perspective of this whole sonic landscape that's southern california or you know that was definitely a thought and um as far as, uh, yeah, I don't know where I was going with that, but, you know, it, it, I think as far as the most popular band, that, that name or whatnot, I think the least amount of people saw Sublime. I mean, Kurt Cobain had already been in Europe doing Coliseums. Uh, there had already been these huge, and Sublime basically, like, they did the Warp Tour, you know. I remember one year for New Year's Eve was... Pearl Jam open, Nirvana played second, and the Chili Peppers closed. And that was an arena tour in the Cow Palace and uh, in Southern Cow was the Forum. Or, you know, like they were already playing huge places. And, I mean, Sublime's biggest date to that point had been like probably the end of the Warp Tour where maybe they played to 4,000 people. So putting in perspective, I definitely have to say that, you know, that's the phenomena here is like that's the – the biggest, most resonant artist that nobody really got to see, you know? Yeah, it's it's outrageous. The amount of albums they sold compared to the amount of tickets that they sold. It's uh, I don't think anybody has a, a bigger ratio. Now, John, I, I've got to ask you because, uh, you know, with the 25th anniversary, uh, it's something that I've been following very closely. And uh, yes, I'm a huge fan and I, I love the Noel family. I also understand that the music industry is a business and, um, you know, that 
that the record labels are basically investing. They're, they're putting money out in hopes to get a lot of money back from these artists. Um, Bud did an interview recently where he said uh, two weeks after Brad passed, the record label told them, find a new singer and hit the road. Yeah, I wanted is, to comment on that. Go ahead and finish your thought. But. Is, is, this, is this something that you remember happening? Was it ever a discussion? Was it ever nope. thought about? Nope. 100% can tell you no. And I could tell you that uh, not to throw anyone under the bus or anything, but like one thing that for me um, has always kind of hurt me quite a bit is like there's a lot of anachronism, uh, you know, that is present in the way that some of those events have been remembered and the way that the ringer dot magazine uh, article, which I was citing before said like, well, there's like four different sides of the story. If you were there, then you couldn't remember it right. Or something like that. Um, just been a lot of irresponsible, like commentary like that, which, you know, uh, I'm not, Personally, like I said, you know, yeah, you probably didn't remember, you know, you were knee deep in, in doing that. So if you remember, but 100% was not the case whatsoever. Um, Long Beach Dub All-Stars was the call after that. There was no label. The label didn't even know. There was no, I mean, label presence that was sitting there, you know, dictating anything. They it just, this music took a life of its own and... Within the context of that, we put some benefit shows together called Enough Already that were associated with MAP, the Musician's Assistance Program, and bringing awareness. My point, actually, segue into this, my point about the, the press and the PR around hip-hop and Biggie and Tupac's death, and that was propelling this huge commercial wave of hip-hop and sales and all that. The thing that really bugged me, too, at that point is the PR machine wasn't there telling the story about sublime and, and like in that culture, people that were dying of other causes like gangster rap was shootings, you know, in our scene, there was Cobain, there's Andrew Wood, there's Shannon Hoon. It's the age old, young, 28 year old singer songwriter in that other culture. That's not hip hop. And they were dying of drug overdoses and, you know, being that this is Bradley's house and you have a whole pension to try to, you know, help and solve these issues and give people help. It was odd to me. And I know why it's because nobody knew who Brad Noel was. Nobody met sublime yet. The first time anyone saw them in a big stage was like at the billboard awards. you know what I mean? Like the press I'm saying. And so they didn't get the coverage. The story didn't get the coverage and you know, 5 million people, 4.5 million people that bought that record on that first year didn't even know Bradley was dead. So it is a whole other scenario there where, and then, you know, leading to the fact that like, no, the label didn't say that. Um, not, not my label, not me, not gasoline out. I mean, someone maybe muttered that as a joke, you know what I mean? But there was no real effort to be, Oh yeah, let's, Nobody would ever do that. Like one thing, my respect to everybody involved with the making of, of Sublime self-titled record. There's a lot of people that put a lot of time, heart, soul, blood, sweat, tears, talent. Of course. And, yeah. And 
those are the people that should be recognizing that. And, you know, uh, thankfully, again, like 25 years later, the music has more relevance than it ever has. I mean, I'm always sitting here thinking to myself and during this whole, like, pandemic, like, man, what would Brad Noel be saying right now? You know, <laughs> I want to hear, you know? It was like, or creating. Yeah, I mean, it was just like, that's, that's the part that is... Outside of the, you know, the things that we touched on, I mean, the part that's uh, tough sometimes, like, you just wish you had your friend that made that music that was so good that, like, man, I, I always think about that. Like, what would Bradley be doing today? Yeah, there's so many artists through this whole pandemic that have come up with just some great material and and really impressive stuff. And that's one thing that has struck me is, like, you know, during all of this, during the shutdown, during all this time of having to completely change the way that you're living your life and and interacting with the world, it would have been very interesting to see what he would have come up with. He would have been going nuts. He'd have been playing in front of every <laughs> store at the end of every pier. There's no way he's going that long without playing. The police would be chasing him away for having gatherings with no masks. He'd be Oh, 53 years old, hightailing it down the beach with his guitar in his hand. Well, 20, <laughs> 28 years old. Um, because I just, I, again, I just, there's no way that he would be able to go that long without getting music out of him. I don't know. I don't know what he would have done. Think about this. I mean, if we had, like, Brad and Sublime were just Brad on acoustic, like, streaming to us every, you know. Oh, that yeah. That would have been like, because, yeah. you know, it's kind of a part of our lives the last like year and a half was right actually being able to have our favorite artists in our living room from their living room you know right something totally different and it's a different experience and i mean it would have been amazing to hear bradley playing new songs the acoustic great you know yeah anything. i mean he would have come up with all kinds of stuff i bet <laughs> i'm sure I but i think take the medium of what was there i feel like Brad would have been one of those artists that like relished in it. You know what I mean? Yeah, he would have. You're right. Yeah. If, yeah, it's, I hate those ifs, man. If my aunt had a dick, she'd be my uncle. Um, <laughs> now, do you have to edit that out? Yeah, probably, but we won't. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I, you keep firing questions. You know what I mean? All you want. One thing that I was going to say is uh, if you wanted to do one of those things like kind of like where they ask Eric about songs or go through the record. I mean, I could give you guys, I got, I got some questions. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, and that actually one of the things I was going to bring up, I know that obviously you've been watching the articles come up. Did you see, uh, I believe it was billboard that ranked all of their songs self-titled. They ranked the songs in order to what they believed was the worst to, uh, best song on the album. Did you, did you catch that? I think that's, I think that's one of the ones that I'm talking about. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They had that, they had that little, um, I, I, I'm not going to lie to you. My favorite song on self-titled, my favorite song in the history of music, any song, any musician, my number one favorite song is Jailhouse by Sublime. So I was very shocked when I saw they had that one listed um, that way. Did you, did, did you take exemption to that list? I, I did. I'm not, let's talk about that right there. Um, let's get into it. When I first heard Sublime play Jailhouse, and I want to say it was at the Golden Sales Hotel, it was one of these shows where 
uh, I don't know, you know, a total, I think it was them and the mentors, or El Duce was there, I remember that night. <laughs> it was like this crazy, like, lobby scene in Golden Sales Hotel, or whatever that one yes. is. Yes. Yeah, Island. it's Golden Sales. Uh-huh. I remember Bradley had these green black flies on, and it was just one of those real down-home Long Beach shows. El Duce, the mentors running around. It was mayhem in there and I remember there's kind of like no stage almost the band was like in the same level as the audience and Brad was in there and I remember him busting into jailhouse that night just that like slow beat that it's, and then it was like what's this song and it was like you know start singing Jet Rudy gets planted and it was like what's that because we hadn't really heard it before um, and that particular song, it became definitely a favorite of mine. I, I really loved that whole obscure Jamaican when Brett, I mean, it's a lot what he did, but with the newer songs like Jailhouse and then Crazy Fool, which didn't make the album. It's on the Live at the Palace, Three Ring Circus. But, and he says something at the end of Live at the Palace, Three, Three Ring Circus. He's like, well, we'll see you here next year. We'll see how that one is then. Like, he was just starting to get that one readied, you know, for um, those obscure Jamaican classics that came from, you know, Jailhouse wasn't written by Sublime. It was actually written by Bob Marley, from what I understand. But there's also somewhat of a discrepancy in terms of if Bob Marley actually wrote it or if it was one of these ones that kind of came more from the Jamaican full, you know, whatever passed down, maybe even earlier. Um, I believe Marley gets final credit for writing it, but um, interestingly enough, it, it made the album and was super, super stoked that that made the album. Um, another one that was kind of floating there in that vein was 89 Vision, like that group of songs for Sublime. Um, don't remember if it got attributed to Bob Marley or just traditional on the initial press of, of the self-title, but um I was excited that that made it. I always loved him playing that song live. Um, and I got the chance recently, I was in the studio in Miami with Stephen Marley, Bob Marley's son. Um, he's working on his new album. And we were just talking about music. And I was, you know, kind of, Stephen Marley likes Slightly Stupid a lot. And, you know, he's like, Stephen Marley, like, he he's seen some of these younger bands and he likes them, you know? And, He's like an eight-time Grammy producer, uh, artist. And I was like, hey, I was like, Steven, have you ever heard Jailhouse? Do you know the song Jailhouse? Apparently your dad wrote it, uh, Jailhouse. And I'm like, have you ever heard the Sublime version of it? And I, um, I, I said, hey, man, let me send you this. And I sent him the Spotify link of Jailhouse so he could listen to that song done by Sublime on the self-titled. That was just a couple of weeks ago. I haven't talked to him uh, to see what he thought of it or if he listened to it yet. But I was, for Jailhouse, I was really excited to be like, hey, man, check out this version of it. You know, that's the sublime. Yeah, it's it's my all-time favorite song. And I'm a huge music fan. I've got a ton of so, But I, I can't explain why it's that song. I don't really have an answer for it. Uh, it just is. It's just everything uh, everything about that song. And when I saw that that was number one on the list... Uh, number one worse? Went, yeah, definitely not. Well, no. It was... No, he had it listed as the best. Oh, the yeah, number one. the best. Okay. The best song. Now, here's the problem, so right? to that, like, again, I mean... That's not one that Brad actually wrote, per se, so he, he made it to his own. So I have to say, like, 
a lot of times that stuff happens. And I mean, um, it's an interpretation, yeah, though. Fortunate Youth did that one for Bradley's house. Yeah, they did a great job. And they do a really good job on that too. Mm-hmm. Grant Kelly's like a real singer with a real voice and is really yeah. he has his own style. Um, and you know, sometimes when I say, well, people think that's a sublime song like a lot you know that one actually was uh more of a straight cover or an interpretation like you said as much of brad's music but dude none of us would ever know that song if it wasn't for for bradley and you know go back and listen to other versions of it and you know if you could ever find i think dave's lacket might have filmed uh that golden sales one there is definitely video footage of bradley doing jailhouse at that show Epic. Nice. Epic. Yeah, there's there's a couple of live jailhouses where Brad doesn't have the lyrics worked out yet, and it is an interpretation of a song that is similar in, but it's again, it's nowhere near. It's, Ray Kroc didn't invent the fucking cheeseburger, but most people think McDonald's did. You know what I mean? Um, so I I do agree with you there, but the list is a little skewed anyway because he's got the worst song on the album as uh, Wrong Way, and it's because he doesn't like the lyrics. So, I mean, <laughs> what the fuck, buddy? Again, that was one of the ones that just makes me think, like, this is so pedestrian, like, you should actually go do the work, you know? It's, it's almost irresponsible journalism. <laughs> and it's just a fun, opinionated kind of piece, but it's like a dilettante's view of the record. The song is called Wrong Way. It's not called Do This, Everybody. It's called This Is this is the Wrong Way to Live and Think and, and Do Things. So I'm not sure why people get so bent out of shape uh, about it. Um, because, again, it's Brad's basically saying this is the wrong way. Don't don't do this. This isn't a good this isn't a good lifestyle. But somebody out there has has indeed done this. But nonetheless, you, you don't you don't like the lyrics to it. So it's it's the worst song on the album, which is outrageous yeah definitely don't agree with that one either that's real life shit told by a storyteller that saw it you know and <laughs> made it into a, a caper of his own and, uh, and subjective which is fair yeah and I mean you know date rape same way those edgy sublime right. songs that at the end the resolve is you know uh, some kind of justified punishment right and, right and the social commentary leaves it up to you to kind of interpret, you know what I mean? But right. But you got to get to the end. (laughs) Right. You got to, you got, right. You got to get to the end to learn that rape is not good. And the guy is punished by getting raped. So that's, yeah. What I I love about Bradley is he was just playing with words on those things and having fun with these scenarios that really did give you a glimpse into like real life from, you know, that, that, experience and i mean yeah i mean that was happening right in front of their eyes and they're chronicling this experience and uh i think a creative kind of fun way to get you hooked to take and you know like i think that was part of the also antagonist nature of brad's art in a sense is to have that you know um taboo about what he's saying in a sense, right. you know, like any great right. music that's that, you know, I mean, the music of the street is going to say things bluntly and hip hop does that too. And, you know, I mean, Brad did of that. course, meant yeah, to do that, and that's part of that. Yeah. And well, at the I time think- it was edgy and, and now I think sometimes it can be construed as flippant, but, but I think at the time it really was intended to be like a wake up call of like, 
you know, hey, let's talk about this shit. This stuff is real. And oh, yeah, Brad was like 23 when he wrote Date Rape. <laughs> so let's not forget that, right? Like people think that like, oh, wow, I'm, I'm 50 listening to this song and it doesn't age well. Well, nobody knows what a 50-year-old Brad would have been writing about. But at 23, people think and act differently. So uh, it's, it's something that doesn't get taken into consideration. And it's funny because it's like you don't get grandfathered in for like previous stuff that's okay. But you've got songs on the radio now that like, you know, Foster the People has a song about school shootings and it was, it's on the radio in the mall. All the little kids with the pumped up kicks better learn to run from my bullets. Like it's a song about school shooting and you're playing it in fucking Macy's while right. I'm getting my kid a sweater for Easter. That's okay. Oh indiscretions from a 23 year old who wrote a song back in 93. Right. Right. I get it. Um, well, I mean, in this generation, if Sublime was just coming out with that music, good luck. I mean, we, we weren't in this kind of new era of, uh, I don't want to get political really, but like there are some things that, you know, like uh, people are real hypersensitive today and back then uh, maybe weren't as much, you know? So it'd be interesting to see how some of those things would be taken in today's uh, media, you know? If Sublime was a super popular artist and then it was like they dropped something like, Mary, like, oh my God, you know what I mean? Like, that, right. uh, or wrong way, or you know, date rape, whatever. We're in a right, hyper, right. hypersensitive, media driven, you know, society at this point. And sure, right, Mary, not politically, not politically correct. I think Mary's a beautiful love song, and he says that he will not go so far deep inside her tonight. So, oh no. <laughs> I think okay, he's now being... we're gonna have to edit that. No, no, Jared, no. <laughs> he says he will not. Yeah, and I go I ahead and make a note to edit. <laughs> I don't think I can. I don't think I can. All right, back on track, uh, Jared. <laughs> so, John. <laughs> John, you know how sometimes you, you go and you see the shrink and they show you a picture and they want to know what your immediate response is to it. We've all seen it on TVs and movies. When you see the self-titled Sublime album cover, you see the Sublime tattoo from shoulder to shoulder and Brad's silly red hair in it. Uh, uh, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Interesting. I was going to um, comment on and say I wanted to, like, that particular album cover happened after, you know, posthumously, after Brad had passed, um, the original, original title for the record was called Killing It. And then it became Killing, like when the band was discussing, like, what's this record going to be called? Where we were all trying to think of the title, right? Bradley, too. And I remember it was Killing It, How I Spent My Summer Vacation. <laughs> and the, and that's in, I mean, I have, you know, uh, scribbles and things like, you know, probably in my archives that have that on it by the band. And the original art cover was going to be the the clown in the easy chair that right. is underneath the, the CD. Opie's, you know, what, I don't want to say was his caricature of Bradley because it was like an older clown and whatnot, but... <laughs> I mean, the truth of the matter is the record was going to be called Killing It, How I Spent My Summer Vacation, and the cover was going to be that drawing, 
and you see in the footage and the pictures, or the pictures, because no one's, I think, seen the footage, but where Brad is holding up to the last show, the, the audience at the end of the show, he's holding up the album, he's holding up the artwork. He's got the picture. Todd Kaplan shot that picture of Bradley where he's holding up the artwork. He's telling people about the new album. And that artwork is the Opie Clown. And at that point in time, it had a lot more details in the picture itself. It had syringes and, like, um, it was... That was cleaned up later to be acceptable in the CD, given the circumstances. And it was made the tray art as opposed to the cover, which I think, respectfully so, after everything that did happen, the cover is a testament to Bradley and, you know, that tattoo that Opie drew. And it's just such an iconic... I feel like, you know, I mean... That's what needed and deserved to be the record cover under those, you know, unfortunate circumstances. It becomes a tribute to Brad, his back, the band's name, and there's so much symbolism in that. His his red red color hair at that point, um, and the lotus flowers that Opie drew. But in all honesty, like the band was going for killing it. How I spent my summer vacation, and you know, the clown art in its X-rated, non-PG-13-rated you know PG-13 rated version. Whose call was it to nix the... I mean, obviously, it, it, it makes sense, and I understand, but somebody had to, somebody had to initiate the tough conversation. Who, do you remember uh-huh. who said, we can't call it this? I don't know. I feel like that was probably a collective. Can't really remember the details on that one. I think everybody that was close enough knew to do the respectful thing, and... I forget how that picture actually surfaced. Um, maybe Jason Westfall. I don't. Opie took it, you know, when he took the tattoo, or um, and I think that one was going to be in the packaging, maybe anyway. But yeah, I don't, as, as things worked out, that really became um, the, uh, the image that made the most sense. And look, I mean, that immortalized Sublime, and you know that. Tattoo is real life. It's Brad's back. I mean, you can draw so much into that. So sometimes the universe has a way of working things out. And that just happened to be the right thing to do. No, absolutely. It's uh, And again, it's it's an iconic cover. And it's just something that the second you see it, you know exactly what you're what you're seeing so um i actually had it in my notes here about the name change i didn't know about the how i spent my summer part though that's something that i actually just just learned about so um killing it and then yeah how i spent my summer vacation and then if you you look at that clown picture the guys inside you know i want to say maybe there's a pool outside but uh there was another title being kicked around called poolside um, I remember discussing that for a little bit, but ultimately, uh, pretty sure before, uh, you know, Brad's passing was killing it. How I spent my summer vacation. Wow. So back to my question, when you see that, when you see that cover, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? What's, what is, what's the first thing that you think of? Uh, I want to turn around and see Bradley smile. Yeah. That would, I can, I can totally understand that. Um, it's something that's, uh, yeah, I can, I can totally see where you're coming from on that. So what would you say is the legacy of 
the the self-titled album. I mean, it's something that you were such a huge part of, and we've talked about it now in, in two episodes. And realistically, I think we all know that if it wasn't for you, we're probably not having this conversation. Now, I know you're not going to say that, but let's be honest. If you weren't there uh, really kind of quarterbacking this thing and, and pushing, we may not be sitting here and, and, and having this conversation and talking about Sublime. What is the legacy of that album to you? I mean, honestly, it's like, it's almost everything. It's uh, the culmination of, you know, uh, a journey that started for me in like late 93, 94, hearing this music and meeting these guys that were colorful characters that, you know, I, it's just the stamp on a journey that got cut short, you know, too soon unfortunately but at the same time just um you know i see that and it's the it's the victory as well it's like that actually by the grace of god was made made it to the general public and the world got to hear this music open them up to the rest of sublime's music and um you know the world got to the, the you know i mean instead of thousands of people millions upon millions of people embraced and I mean it's like music that's helped people get through their lives and been a soundtrack to their lives including my own um it just is the indelible stamp that just you know um I think of it in the context of you know I mean Sublime's got 40 ounce Robin the Hood and and self-title is like they're they're three major full album statements and it just kind of it reminds me of Hendrix, Nirvana um, you know and and that's the indelible stamp that we you know like just see every time you hear the music you know you think about that tattoo and the word sublime and and, uh, and Bradley you know sometimes uh, I mean I feel like he's like in some regards, a, a martyr for, you know, even though it's like, you can say all kinds of things about his departure and, you know, what he was doing in that, but um, he was suffering on a level that, you know, and had the intelligence to express it to a way that we haven't really been communicated to by an artist in that respect uh, very often. And, it's just a very human cover, and like I said, it's kind of just an indelible mark to, you know, the stamp of, of a journey of music that lasts forever. Absolutely. I I have to say this has been the most difficult <laughs> episode for me by far, and I think it's a combination of the subject matter, obviously, you know, surrounding the the last album, which was so close to Brad's death, and, and talking with you because you were so close to it and, and have always been so close with my family and, and just, a um, someone that I really could relate to. But, um, thank you very much for doing this because I think a lot of people will appreciate hearing this. Um, but I personally appreciate you being so, you know, open and honest and, and willing to share with us and, and, you know, it's difficult, I think, 
as you mentioned, like we, we don't have many opportunities to hear from someone who, um, is so, is so transparent about what they're going through. And then obviously we all see how it ends up. And I think that's a really, a really challenging thing, but it also reminds us of our humanity, you know, of, of Brad's humanity and our humanity and, and collectively just all of us that we are so fragile and life is so fragile and, you know, things can get really crazy and, and fucked up no matter how great we think they are. And, um, and I think it's a great, a great snapshot of life. So I appreciate you coming on and sharing all that with us. Well, I appreciate that, Kelly. Uh, I mean, if I could affect you to that degree and, you know, have a, a positive effect on just telling the stories and celebrating, um, you know, Bradley's life, the music of Sublime, like I said, all the people that were in, involved in the making of that record, Miguel, uh, Paul Leary, David Kahn, Bud, Eric, Bradley, Marshall, um, a record label, Gasoline Alley, my Uncle Randy Phillips gave me a shot, you know, uh, a guy named Lawrence Safer in the company gave me a shot. I was just a kid, and uh, it's... Like I said, and you guys were asked, it's surreal to think back on 25 years. It's like the, a blink of an eye that all the yeah. time has gone by so quickly, in a sense, when you look back on it. It reminds me of, you know, kind of just starting yesterday and the, the times when I, you know, was in the trenches and first met Brad and Miguel and Bud and Eric and some of those experiences, you know, the studio, the trials, the tribulations, I mean, it's when we're all young and it's kind of when we're still innocent and not jaded and just having fun in some cases, you know, for some people, maybe too much fun. Um, (laughs) It's another case. I mean, it's crazy because again, like I said, I was 23 going through the process. Bradley was a couple years older than me. We were all in the kind of similar age group. This was, it was, guinea pig was our first experiences you know we didn't have the life experience yet to uh draw from you know what i mean so there was an innocence about the time there was uh there was a freedom about it but there was also uh something that you know was like i said it's 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 bittersweet because you know i just wish that you could turn that picture around and bradley could smile back to you you knew like we'd be getting more music and having those times with everybody because it would have been so you know amazing to see like where it went what was what bradley would be commenting on today 25 years later when we're in our 50s and I thought about the band in the context of the Grateful Dead, which survived till, you know, Jerry Garcia was 50-something years old, 52, you know, premature, but, like, Brad didn't get there. I always remember at one of the Enough Already Benefit press conference things was like, well, Keith Richards is still alive, Jerry Garcia is still alive, you know what I mean? Like, some people escape, you know, the uh, the pitfalls and the demons and you know these these things that are uh unfortunately you know take too many uh shooting stars shining stars early and um yeah brad happened to be one one of the shining the the brightest stars brightest shooting stars that you could ever see touch feel witness and i'm just lucky that you know uh i got to 
be in his presence for the time I did, you know, lightning kind of struck. That doesn't always happen in your lifetime. might only happen once in your lifetime. I mean, I said this before in the podcast or other, I mean, every day I have to, in my heart, thank Brad Noel and and Sublime as a whole, but just for me being where I'm at still, you know, 25 years later, most of the things would never have happened if it wasn't for Bradley Noel and, I wouldn't have met Brad Noel if it wasn't for Greg Abramson, so I have to give him props too because, you know, he made the initial introduction and a lot of people work very hard on this, you know, kind of team that took Sublime at, you know, at whatever cost, you know. It wasn't like we were all sitting there making huge money or something. We, we loved this music. We felt it. It affected us, and we were down to push it for whatever it took. And, I mean, that's... Bordo, Greg, Dave's Lackett, Zach Fischel, Josh Fischel, uh, you know, uh, like I said, the Gaslin Alley people, uh, even MCA people that took kind of a, a shot on it, and not knowing, like, kind of the chain of events for it to really materialize and, and be there for us to cherish for, you know, eternity is, um, that's the greatest gift, and, you know, by God's grace, it, it happened, and, uh, Glad that I could be a part of, you know, that whole experience. Yeah, and if you weren't a part of it, then we probably wouldn't have what we have right now. So we're also thankful that you were a part of it. And, you know, I think something that you mentioned is something that I mentioned a lot of times is, you know, we, we talk about the, ah, uh, you know, that maybe they're having too much fun. And clearly that was certainly the case, but you said it, man, you guys were kids. These were, you know, these were 20 year olds. I didn't know, I didn't know my asshole from my elbows when I was in my twenties, um, you know, and to the, the kind of music that they were able to, to put out at, at that young of an age and what you guys were able to accomplish. Like you said, you, you were, you know, you were just getting your, your beak wet with sublime and they were just learning the ropes. And realistically the self-titled album was everybody's first run at this thing. And you guys knocked it out of the fucking park. Um, and I, I just think that it's, uh, it's absolutely amazing. And here we are 25 years later. Um, and you know, just a few months ago, it probably still is right now, but I haven't checked just a few months ago, the album's still on billboards top 200 for, for this year. Um, yeah, you know, it's just, it's, it's absolutely amazing that it's, it's held up so well after all of these years. Um, and there really is no, no title or genre for it. You know, it's good music is good music. And, uh, that's why it's, it stands the, the test of time and, uh, for, for what you've done and all of the people that you mentioned, um, you know, it was, uh, it was a masterpiece and it's, uh, it's great that we're here 25 years later and still talking about it and, and it being so relevant and so big still uh to this day um i just think is is absolutely incredible yeah complete testament to uh the soul and talent and uh you know i think the immortalization of of bradley and uh and the band yeah, there's, there's no question about it. And, you know, exactly what you said, um, you know, speaking about losing him, it's, you know, early. That's why we're doing this podcast. And that's why the Noel Family Foundation is is doing everything that they're doing to make sure uh, that they can be there and, and help somebody in that situation. So once Bradley's house is able to get funded and, and up and running, um, you know, be able to uh, to help some musicians dodge some of those landmines with uh, with some good staff and 
and lots of experience coming from the foundation. So, um, you know, again, that's, that's the whole reason why we're doing this. And I can't thank you enough for coming on and sharing these stories, uh, and giving us an opportunity to kind of pick your brain and, and hear about self-titled and, uh, and help support the foundation that way. And, uh, and give all of the listeners just an awesome conversation to listen to. But I'm out. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, it's my pleasure to do so. My honor. And, uh, Rest in peace, Bradley Knoll. You know, thank you to him and Sublime, the LBC. Well, Kelly, I, I, every this is the second time we've had John on, and I could have kept him for five hours each time. He's just an amazing guest every time. He's a great person. I love talking with him. I'll never forget. I think it was. Gosh, it was, it was over 10 years ago when I, I saw him at a show and I hadn't seen him in a while. And um, it was like no time had passed. And we just sat there and talked for the longest time. He's just he's got such great stories and so much fun to talk with. And he's so generous with his memories and um, just really, really a lot of fun to talk to. And it was so cool of him to come back on for a second time. Yeah. You know, there's people out there that say like, oh God, I love Sublime or I love Brad or, uh, but like, man, John Phillips is one of the people that when you hear him talk about it, you know, he means it. Yeah. Very genuine. And I, I've always known that he loved Sublime and loved my brother. And, um, you know, I even remember him at, at Brad's wedding. And so it was, it, it's really great that we still have a connection and still have a relationship and, and so awesome of him to, to, you know, support the foundation and be on the show. It sure was. And uh, guys, we hope that you enjoyed the conversation with John Phillips. The reason why we get a new episode of Bradley's House podcast out to you each and every week is not just to share these amazing stories and spread awareness, but obviously the Knoll Family Foundation is raising funds to get Bradley's House up and built, and you can be a part of it. You can visit the org, or in the description of this show, you'll find a link tree. It'll give you all of the information that you need, all the different ways that you can take part uh, and help have your little piece of this part of the story and get Bradley's house up and built. And uh, make sure you are following the foundation's pages on whatever social media you prefer, uh, because there's some exciting news that's going to be coming up soon for all of you Sublime fans. So uh, find the Knoll Family Foundation on Facebook or Instagram. Go ahead and find uh, them on Twitter as well. It's the Knoll Family Foundation everywhere. We also have Bradley's House podcast on Twitter and the Bradley's House group on Facebook. Kelly, I know you get uh, a little overwhelmed sometimes with the amazing support that comes through social media and the messages and the YouTube comments. And I I know you and the family really appreciate all the support from the listeners. We absolutely do. I wish there were 10 of me (laughs) that could could respond to things. Uh, Sometimes I feel bad that I don't get back to people, but um, it's just because I, I appreciate every single person that takes the time out of their day to comment on a post or to like it or to send a message or, you know, to, to buy some of the merch, like every little thing. I, I see all of that and uh, it just means so much. And it reminds me that that we're not alone and that we're all in this together. And um, and it's such a tribute to Brad. And it, it really um, on the days that honestly that I'm having a hard time and, um, you know, just super angry at him for not being here. Um, it's really comforting to know that there's so many people that miss him and love him. And, um, 
and it really helps. And, and I'm not always good at expressing that. So I just, I hope that people know how much that we appreciate them. And I try to always respond as quickly as possible, but um, I'm sure I dropped the ball a lot too, because I've got so much going on, but, but it really, uh, this is, this kind of a project is not something that we can do alone. And um, so every single thing means, means so much. And the support has been incredible. So guys, make sure that you are following the Knoll Family Foundation wherever you're listening to this show. Go ahead and hit that five stars. Hopefully we've earned it. If we haven't, hit the five stars anyway, guys. We're a nonprofit raising money for a charity here. Be nice. (laughs) Um, And uh, go ahead and leave your comments. Like Kelly said, uh, we see them all, and it's just uh, great when you guys are doing that. Uh, Check out the KnollFamilyFoundation.org. You can pick up T-shirts, hats. Uh, If you guys aren't in a spot right now where, hey, I've already bought all the T-shirts and hats, just sharing the information to some of your friends on social media, sharing the show, uh, that stuff goes a long way to help spread the word because that is really important. So uh, we appreciate everything that you guys have done. And uh, Kelly... On today's episode, we spoke with John a little bit about uh, the article that said the number one song on self-titled was Jailhouse. Now, we talked a little bit about that. I'm a huge music fan. I love all kinds of music. And in the history of music, of all of the music that has ever been made in the entire world, Jailhouse is my number one favorite song ever written and performed number one in the whole world. And there's a lot of weird other songs. It's not like all sublime songs, one through 10, like you guys would all like to think. Um, but <laughs> as, as far as, as far as music goes, jailhouse is my number one all time favorite song. So I thought it was cool that somebody else also appreciated that John talked about how much he enjoyed it and told some stories about it. And to end everybody out, we are going to feature from the house that Bradley built compilation album available at law records.com. This is jailhouse by Fortunate Youth. And be sure to check out Fortunate Youth at Reggae Rise Up in Las Vegas, October 9th and 10th. And while you're there, please stop by the No Family Foundation booth because we'll be there and we're looking forward to seeing you. So excited. Oh, I won't give it up to you. I feel love, feel love, love, love. Oh, jailhouse gets empty. And Rudy gets a plenty. Oh, the battle's tip is shorter. Oh, and Rudy gets taller, taller. Can't fight against you. Oh, no, because we're strong. And the loot, holy boy. Well, it was a youth in 1983 It was the best day of my life Had the 89 vision We didn't fuss on no fight When all the little donuts wanna be my wife Felt the vision It was playing on my guitar On my guitar I had to be there 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 When the rhythm It was playing Oh, I knew that I gotta be there, yeah Oh, now Bradley is singing up there, yeah Oh, love is beeping out here, yeah. Oh, no rhythm. It was singing, singing versions, singing versions, reggae versions, 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 versions.
been told to the wise and uprooted. Mm-hmm. It's gonna be revealed unto unto base and sublime. Mm-hmm. Can't find a Oh, my guitar, I had to be there, hard to be there. Oh, 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 I'm the beep, 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 oh, I'm the beep, beep, oh, no, 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 oh, 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 said the weather was a youth, it was the best day, it was the best day of my life, had a young vision, we didn't fuss on no fight, when all the little daughters wanna be my wife, well, I'd rather It was playing on my guitar, on my guitar. I had to be there, 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 I had to be there.